I mean, when you're young, you might not have gone through a, you know, a life-defining crisis, but there's a pretty good chance it will happen. There are very few people that reach their 80s that haven't had some kind of crucible life-defining moment, so it'll happen. And so being forewarned or forearmed is sort of helpful. Your worst day in life doesn't define you. Welcome to the Seton Hall Undergraduate Leaders Podcast. While there are a ton of other leadership podcasts out there on the interwebs, this is the only one solely dedicated to developing undergraduate leaders in numerous fields. We bring in interesting leaders from a variety of disciplines and industries to dish out practical advice for entrepreneurial undergraduates embarking on their professional careers. You'll hear from leaders operating at all levels, CEOs and other C-suite individuals who are at the top of their industries, mid-career professionals only several years removed from their college days, and young leaders in school who are already doing amazing things. We feature leaders from business, diplomacy, education, journalism, engineering, law, medicine, and the sports world. It's all part of our mission here at the Bucino Leadership Institute. At Seton Hall, we make leaders better. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Seton Hall Undergraduate Leaders Podcast. It's your host, Brian Price, the Executive Director of the Bucino Leadership Institute. And today we're fortunate to have Warwick Fairfax with us. Warwick is the founder of Crucible Leadership, a philosophical and practical breakthrough in turning businesses and personal failures into the fuel for igniting a life of significance. He was only 26 when, as the fifth generation heir to a media empire in Australia bearing his name, he led and lost a multi-billion dollar public takeover bid. So what did that mean? It meant the company founded by his great-great-grandfather slipped from family control after 150 years, leaving him to examine not only his shortcomings and losses, but also his life's principles and some hard-earned lessons learned. Today, he's a speaker and podcast host for his Beyond the Crucible podcast, where he shares his own insights from his experiences and interviews other leaders who have leveraged their crucible moments to live and lead with significance. Warwick graduated from Oxford University for his undergraduate degree, and he earned his MBA from Harvard Business School. We've heard of both of those places, Warwick. But before you get too enamored with his impressive credentials, know that he has consciously decided to raise his family in Annapolis, Maryland, home of my sworn enemy, the Naval Academy. (laughs) So there's no accounting for taste in this uh, podcast. (laughs) I'm totally just kidding, Warwick. Uh, Welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you on. Well, it's funny you mentioned about West Point. We normally live in Annapolis, but we're actually in far northern Michigan. And last summer, I was chatting to my neighbor and I said, you know, I'm, we live in Annapolis, Maryland. He said, never heard of it. Like just deadpan, never heard of it. So well, that's interesting. And then he started laughing. He's a West Point grad. So, <laughs> and he actually has a flagpole with the U.S. flag and a West Point flag. So he's sort of diehard West Point. So he had me because I didn't quite a, get that so, okay Annapolis, Maryland, so, we it. so this is the second time. Uh, <laughs> no it's 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 interesting so when I was choosing for for college I was accepted to both West Point and Annapolis and uh, Navy and my mom really wanted me to go to Annapolis because I don't know if you've ever visited West Point but Annapolis is a buzzing town great shopping right. restaurants it's the capital <laughs> of of the state and uh, West Point's beautiful in its own right, but not the same attraction. So, but anyways, it, it's a beautiful yeah. place. I, I'm, I'm only teasing. So first, when I heard that we were actually going to be able to get you on the podcast from a mutual friend of ours, Carrie Childers, I told her that I absolutely loved the name of, of your, your company, Crucible Leadership. 
And being in the military, I think I can relate a lot to that concept. And I'll share how we incorporate it into our curriculum here at Seton Hall University. But I wanted to kind of ask you, why don't you share what you mean by crucible leadership? Yeah, I mean, for me, it really comes down to what is a crucible. And it's really, it's sort of a cauldron that it really refines who you are. The dross the, is drawn out and then you're left with really the, the pure essence. And so a crucible can be a loss. It can be a business failure. It could be death of a loved one. Um, and we've had on Beyond the Crucible all kinds of stories from you know, abandoned orphans to abuse to you know, business failure, health challenges. You know, obviously, we've had some military folks and some of the challenges and physical challenges that come with that. So really, a crucible, it's a refining moment. Who you are after is not the same as who you were before. And so the question is, when you go through a crucible, is will you sort of give up on life, kind of hide under the covers and say, look, I'm done. It may have been unfair. It might have been your own fault. Or are you going to figure out how can I use, uh, to use a word we use and others, how can you use your pain for a purpose? How can you come out of that, perhaps at least internally, better, stronger? And how can you use that, as we say, to lead a life of significance, which means a life on purpose, focused on helping others? So crucible leadership really means how can you get out of this terrible situation you're in, at least from an emotional and spiritual perspective, and you know, use what you've been through in a way that actually is more outward focused, focused on helping others. I love it. I love it. And I, I can't wait to share with you kind of the class that we run that's actually called Crucible Moments oh. uh, in a second. But first, I would be remiss to kind of ask you about, you know, I, I've heard that you said crucibles have a tendency to find you. And so I'd like you to share a little context. I talked about a little bit in the intro, but give a, the audience a little context about your big crucible moment. Yeah, it's, well, I mean, I grew up in this 150-year-old family media company. It had the equivalent in Australia of the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, TV stations, magazines, radio. I mean, it had the opinion leaders of the country. So it was very influential. You know, if you're a prime minister, a business leader, you wanted to know Fairfax Media and what was the City Morning Herald going to say about you it was sort of a big, a big deal. And so really the pressure and expectations on me were immense. I was seen by my parents as the heir apparent. What, and it wasn't just a business. It was almost like a sacred cause, if you will. It was, I know, Seton Hall is, a, is an institution of faith. And the company was founded by a person of very strong faith, elder in his church, great husband, great dad. His employees loved him. He did everything right. As a faith-based business person, it's sort of the gold standard. So it was a lot of expectations and pressures. And so when I came back from Harvard Business School in 87, my dad had died earlier that year. He was in his 80s at the time. I was from marriage number three. It's sadly when there's a lot of money, sometimes there are more marriages. And so my parents felt that the company wasn't being run along the ideals of the founder, wasn't being well managed. And whether that's true or not, being young, idealistic, I felt like, you know, I, it was my duty. And it's funny, obviously, as a West Point grad, you'll appreciate this. There are those words, duty on a country, which you would know have came from General Douglas MacArthur and the speech to the Corps of Cadets at West Point in 1962. And I've never served in the military, but that concept of duty was just ingrained in my DNA. And so it was irrelevant as to whether I, I wanted to do this or whether it was 
fit my design or gifting. It was, well, somebody has to do something. The company isn't being run well and not run along the ideals of the founder. So I have to do it. I might, you know, I might lose everything, but here I go into the battle. It was a little, very foolish, but yeah, that was the, the backdrop. Before we get to what happened, was there ever any doubt in your, was there any, did you have any options of pursuing another line of work or was this like preordained that you were going to take over and how did, did, did you feel that way? Yeah, it felt preordained because I felt like it would have devastated my dad who I deeply loved and who was in the business and spent his whole life. I mean, it's, you, you don't do that. It's almost, this is going to sound obtuse, but it's almost like being in the Royal family. You don't check out, you know, if you're not doing your duty, that's the mindset. So it's like, I mean, it was, you felt like this was this cause, a sacred cause of having media institutions that at least when they do it right, you know, challenge people that need to be challenged, uplift the ideals of society. I know it sounds idealistic, but that's in theory what it should be. So now I felt like it wasn't so much I didn't have any choice, but how could I choose some, some another path? It would be to renege on my duty, renege on everything the family stood for. So I felt like, it just, it was not an option. If you had any degree of in integrity or idealism, I'm not saying this is a good way of thinking about it. I'm just saying this sure. is how I thought of it. I, I could not possibly have said no. It would be just going against my duty, frankly. And so there you are. It, do I have it correct? You were 26 yeah. when this yeah. happened, yeah. which I think is interesting for our listeners who are college age or, or just recently right. graduated from college and putting yourself in those shoes. So how did it, how did it start to, to, to crumble? Yeah, I mean, I just made so many, I mean, here I have a Harvard MBA and I had made so many stupid assumptions, basically because my emotions were involved without getting too much of the background. Some other family members threw my father out as chairman 11 years before in 1976. So subconsciously there was an element of, you know, how could they do this to the person I thought was a great man? And so there was some subtext subconsciously, but um you know, when I launched this $2.25 billion takeover, other family members sold out, which I wasn't anticipating, of course, should have. Why would they want to be trapped in a company controlled by a 26-year-old? You'd have to be an idiot, but I guess I wasn't thinking straight. Then the stock market crash of 87 hurt our asset sales. So by the end of, of 87, we had an unsustainable level of debt. I brought in new management that increased operating profits 80%. But newspapers are very cyclical, which was the engine of, of, of the company's revenue. So in 1990, when Australia got in a big recession, there was no margin for error. I mean, not like it was none. And so the company went under. So really, once I launched that takeover, it was almost doomed to fail, you know, because I was making some assumptions that were just pretty stupid ones, frankly. Are you, so, and just so our audience hears what you just said, that was 2.26 billion with a B. Right. Uh, not, not, not million, 2.26 right. billion. Now, I, obviously I know how this has kind of formed your path towards uh, feeling a, you know, turning that pain into purpose. Do you feel as though, are you too hard on yourself in terms of the decisions that you made? Or was this, uh, you know, a, a decline in the organization that would have occurred otherwise? And maybe you didn't make all the, the, the right calls, but do you feel as though, are you ever being too hard on yourself in this situation? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, inevitably, I mean, 150 years is very long for a business to stay to one family. So sure. at some point it would have fallen out of family hands. Minor shareholders would have wanted to sell and get their cash out. He 
went working in the business. I mean, inevitably, it probably would have happened. But I guess, you know, at 26, I mean, no offense to any of your listeners, but sometimes you know more a few decades later, you know, but at the time full of idealism, naivety, and maybe a subconscious sense of, you know, look what these people did to my dad, which I wasn't consciously thinking, you know, and there were some advisors who were advising me that weren't, you know, probably had their own interests, you know, just to be getting the big fees and not so much concerned with uh, whether it would work or not, because their thought was, hey, we'll get paid either way. So, yeah, I mean, I listened to some bad advice and maybe, I mean, at, at that age, full of idealism and the sense of things weren't running well, sometimes you make decisions that maybe later on, you know, you wouldn't. I think, you know, part of what I found to be in effective leaders is that ability to be self-reflective and to reflect back on previous decisions uh, because top context is everything and timing is everything. Now, I think, as I mentioned earlier, I think you'll be happy to know that one of our, the very first classes in our four-year program, when I say class, for our freshmen, we meet once a week for the entire year. And I think it's around the third or the fourth class, we have a class called Crucible Moments. And we ask students and faculty to volunteer to share a moment in their life which they feel helped define who they are as leaders, you know, because we're all unique. And we all go through some different trials and tribulations. Now, as you mentioned, oftentimes those crucible moments can be moments of extreme adversity, let's just say. And so I do this because of two primary purposes. The first is, I think it's, and I'll be interested in your thoughts on this. I think it's cathartic for people to share those moments in the life where they've overcome that adversity. And so I feel like it almost empowers you just sharing that story and hearing others kind of in amazement that you've been able to get through that sort of thing. But the second piece, and this is particularly for my undergraduate students, that, you know, when you're 18 years old, it is possible that you have lived those 18 years, and maybe you haven't gone through a ton of adversity. But hearing and seeing other classmates that have gone through stuff is almost like a preview, and also comforting in the sense that, like, you know adversity is going to come in your life in some form or fashion. And hearing how other students overcame it gives you some, a, a sense of, you know, comfort knowing that your time is going to come, but you can get through it when it happens. So my question for you is, what is the best advice that you have for college students and young leaders that can best prepare for those upcoming crucible moments that you know are coming and that can find you? Yeah, I mean, when you're young, you might not have gone through a, a you know, a life-defining crisis, but there's a pretty good chance it will happen. You know, yep. there are very few people that reach their 80s that haven't had some kind of crucible life-defining moment. So it'll happen. And so being, you know, for, you know, forewarned or forearmed is sort of helpful. And part of it is, you know, your worst day in life doesn't define you. You know, most of us, I'm, I'd be the first to admit I'm pretty hard on myself. If I make a mistake, I tend to just almost crucify myself. I mean, I'm not quite that bad, but kind of, you know, and I know that. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe I'm just perfectionist. I don't know. But, but for a lot of us, you feel like, you know, your worst moment, your biggest mistake. I don't, I don't know if mistakes are harder to get over than adversity when it's not your fault. I guess they're different. But realize that doesn't, you know, your worst day doesn't define you. Try to learn those lessons. If it's mistakes you've made, then I'm pretty open about mistakes I've made. But I don't wallow or dwell on them. Learn from them. Try to be better. 
you know, these days I try to hire, you know, have good advisors, good advice. You know, people that won't always tell me what I want to hear. I try to be thoughtful in making decisions. Yeah, I try to make sure what I'm doing is aligned with my desire. I mean, there's all sorts of ways I'm living now that is formed out of the crucible that I went through. So learn from your mistakes. You're not defined by your worst day. And you know, use that as sort of as, as leverage to go forward. So that's probably one of the biggest things is it will happen. But, you know, life's not over. As you say on, on Beyond the Crucible podcast, your worst moment doesn't have to be the end of your story. It can be the beginning of an exciting new chapter. So it's, it's easy to say this, but when you're going through the middle of it, you won't be feeling that. But maybe your comeback out of it, you know, still be excruciating, but maybe your comeback out of it can be a bit quicker. There will be pain. You can't get out of the pain. That will happen. I think it's fantastic advice. And I'm interested, it sounds like when you were going through the takeover, you had some bad advisors or people that were, you know, maybe had ulterior motives and didn't have your best interest at heart. It sounds like as you've gotten older, you found other advisors or mentors that can help you along your path. Any advice for when you're a college kid or recent graduate for seeking out those mentors or people that, you know, is there a a rhyme or a reason on how you pick your people to, to help you out? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You know, one thing, I mean, I did a lot of things wrong when I was young, but even when I was young, I always tried to seek out people, advice from people that were older than me. Now, maybe I didn't listen, maybe I didn't pick the right ones, but sometimes when you're young and I, you know, I can certainly remember this, you want to, you want to make your mark. You want to do it your way. Mom, dad, I got this, right? I got it. You know, it's all going to be, you know, my success. You know, and so there's this understandable desire to, to cut your own path. And that's great. You can do that. But a wise man or woman seeks good advice because it helps you make better decisions from people who've been there before. You wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't go put a roof on a house if you knew, knew nothing about roofing. You'd get an expert. You wouldn't say, well, gee, I'm not a doctor, but hey, let's, let's have a try. I mean, you know, that'd be stupid. So don't be stupid. Get good advice. And then I think more to your point, what kind of mentor should you seek? Don't seek the people that says, great, I've got a two-hour lecture all primed for you. Sit down, take notes, and I'll tell you everything you need to know. You don't need that kind of mentor. Yep. That's not a good one. A good mentor, yes, you want to respect them. You want to feel like their values are aligned with yours. If they're not, forget about it. But their overall vision of life values got to be the same. But you want somebody that asks you good questions. The best mentors ask you questions that make you think, and they don't give you the answer. If somebody's continually giving the answer, it's not a good mentor. Great mentors are disciplined and ask you really good questions that make you think. So I noticed, I, I didn't mention this in your bio, but you're also an ICF certified coach and been through that program. Uh, and we have as well. And you should know that every student in our program, we give five sessions for those students with a professional ICF certified leadership coach. And to me, that was one of the biggest, like when you hear leadership coach, I think my brain automatically goes to sports with a person with a whistle and a clipboard (laughs) and it's going to sit you down and tell you exactly everything you need to know. And as you well know, that's not how it works. And the best coaches are the ones that are not telling you what to do, but they're holding up a mirror and asking questions that are going to get you to come up with, the right answers. And, and you know, one interesting thing on that, the two institutions I went to academically, Oxford and Harvard Business School, they're actually founded on that learning model. 
Oxford, has obviously some of the brightest professors uh, around. And I did philosophy, politics, and economics. And so if you're doing politics, you know, you read an essay out to, you know, a tutorial to students to one professor, and they will ask you these mind-bending, you know, hard questions. They're not going to give any lectures. They're not going to tell you anything, just asking questions. Same at Harvard Business School. You have a professor with maybe 90 students in a class and a horseshoe amphitheater, same thing. It's a case, you know, a particular business case. And they'll say, so why do you think that? So what about this? What's the key issue? What are you going to do about it? So you've got some really bright professors and they're not giving any lectures. They're not saying lectures are bad. They can be very helpful. But there's something to be said for somebody that's very seasoned and wise asking you really tough questions. Yeah, I, I love that. And uh, I think sometimes, at least I'll, I'll, I'll talk about kind of the American education system. I think students like to be kind of spoon fed. And when they walk out of the class, they know exactly what the right answer is. In leadership, as you know, it's a little different, right? There's no kind of one size fits all model for everybody. And so the best thing that I can do in our faculty can do with our students, in my opinion, is to have that student walking out of class going, wait a sec, like making them kind of think almost like a stump the chump thing of, wait, how, what, how do I want to be as a leader? So we're excited about that. So you talk about living a life of uncompromised authenticity. And so I'd like to kind of get your thought as like, what does living with uncompromised authenticity feel like? What does it look like to you? It's being yourself, being who you are. It's not being what your parents want to be or want you to be your professors or people at work. It's, it's being who you are, not try to be this marketing prepackaged person like you know some politicians you know let's do a survey this is what people want i'm going to be i'm going to have these opinions i'm going to look like this dress like that just you know being authentic means just be who you are so whether you're an introvert extrovert athletic more of a studious artistic whoever it is just just be who you are you know don't try to be somebody else i think we intuitively know who we are and we kind of know maybe if, oh, you know, we, we want to be popular with other students or, or whatever it is, say what you think, you know, is going to be cool on campus or whatever. That's understandable. And certainly the pressures to kind of fit in uh, on college is probably as, as intense as it, as it gets in, in some sense. So just, it's easy to say this, I realize, but you have to be disciplined, have enough self-respect, frankly, is what it comes down to and says, look, I am who I am. And I'm not going to be ashamed of it. I'm not going to apologize. I don't mean I'm belligerent and let's be, I'm talking about your true self, not kind of, you know, bad uh, behavior. But yeah, yeah, it really, it's sort of a decision that I'm going to be who I am. And if people are going to be my friends, they're going to be friends of the real me, not some projection I put on, on the outside. Yeah, I, I love that. And my experiences with leadership have been, you know, the leaders that I've, I've looked up to the most were true to themselves. And oftentimes, you know, how leadership is sometimes portrayed in the military or in various professions can sometimes be that hard line person out front. But what I tell our students is like, if that's not you, don't try to lead that way. If you, if you want to lead, you know, I was going through some of your podcasts, you know, the ability to lead quietly and to lead with empathy. If you have sense of humor, use that, you know, there's be kind of authentic to, to yourself. And I think that's the most impactful. Let me ask you about, so we always ask our guests about various resources that they might want to use. And I, I kind of want to start with, with your podcast, Beyond the Crucible. Can you talk a little bit about what our listeners are likely to find from your guests on that podcast? 
I think the core of it is hearing people's stories and how they bounce back. We've had people who've had health health issues like Parkinson's. We've had military folks. You know, Navy SEAL was paralyzed in a training accident. You know, we've had a naval officer whose husband died in a Top Gun training act. We've had you know, business failures. We've had all kinds of different crucibles. And what we ask all these people is tell us about what you went through and how in the world did you come back? You know, and and to be on a podcast, you have to be living a life of significance, which is really a life on purpose, dedicated to serving others. So we want to hear the crucible story, but the bounce back and how you're leading a life significance. So you'll hear, you know, often the, the adage is sometimes things are better caught than taught. Well, we often learn by parables and stories. So you'll hear all these stories of people that have had some really very painful circumstances, but there's often this sense of optimism. The sense of, you know, one stand, one in particular, was a woman, Michelle Quay, age 10, was hit by a, a truck in, in Taiwan, where she grew up now. She lives in California these days. And she never grew after that. So she's permanently disabled. She's four foot or so. And just to go to the grocery store is a challenge because everything's too high. But she has this amazing personality, this just sense of optimism, this sense of love of life. It's like, how can you go through that? It took a while. It took years, as it did in my case. Mine wasn't quite as bad as what she went through. But when you hear people have gone through that, and there's a sense of vitality and optimism and love of life, it's like, how is that possible? I mean, how is that possible? Well, you will hear some of the, some of the clues to that. And so I, I find it inspiring to hear these people's stories. Yeah, I, I imagine. And I'm sure they're equally as inspired to kind of hear your story. Let me ask you, for our students, are there any books or blogs other than your own or any types of, like, who does Warwick follow in terms of, I don't know if you're on social media, who are the people that you look up to that you kind of try to consume their content when it comes to? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think of one John Ramstead, who you should definitely meet if you haven't. He has a, he has a faith-based podcast called Eternal Leadership. And his similar background, in the sense, his was, you know, Navy fighter pilot, Top Gun kind of thing, got injured there in a weird softball accident that derailed his career. I mean, how can a softball end your career? Well, you'd have to hear his story. Uh, Horse riding accident, business failures, but he just has the sense of optimism. And how do you blend an altruistic, uh, perhaps faith-based perspective in leadership and business? I think his podcast, Eternal Leadership, is maybe one of the top 12 leadership podcasts, according to Inc. Magazine. So it's He's, I mean, he's, you know, obviously cut from a similar cloth to yourself in a sense and really great guy. So he's one we've had, it's, you mentioned leading quietly. We've had a couple of Harvard Business School professors on the podcast, Nancy Kane, who wrote a fantastic book, Forged in Crisis. She, she really talks about leadership, but from a perspective for current leaders and current students. So, you know, she's, she's on social media all over the place. So her book's talking about four leaders, Shackleton, Bonhoeffer, uh, Rachel Carson, Frederick Douglass. Shackleton, if you're, if you're sure, sure your, your students know about that, but there's a great case in point. And how do you recover when you're single-handedly responsible for having your team in a situation where it's certain death and it's all your fault? Because as an Arctic explorer, you decide to head to South Pole and everybody tells you this is madness, there's icebergs everywhere, it's really, really bad. And he ignores sane advice and gets his team almost killed. It was a billion to one shot that his team survived. So how do you recover from it's my fault that my team are going to die? And you know that. Yep. Well, I don't know. How, how do you move on from that? I don't know. So that is an epic story. So I love that. 
probably one of the best single books I'm sure you would be familiar with is Team of Rivals about uh, Abraham Lincoln, Doris Kearns, Goodwin. There's a reason historians vote Abraham Lincoln as the top U.S. president. I mean, Washington's, I'm sure, a close second, but they always vote Abraham Lincoln. You read that book from a leadership lens, you learn about supreme self-belief, but with incredible humility. Now, that's an unusual combination. Yes. He was bulletproof. You could say, Mr. Lincoln, you're an idiot. And he'd say, well, I probably am. Explain to me why. <laughs> what political leader do you know that you can say to them, you're an idiot, and they don't just, what are you talking about? Right? Correct. Not, not, not Abraham Lincoln. So that is, that's a must read for future leaders is what character traits did he have that made him so great? Because it's really character that fuels leadership, good leadership. And it's funny that you bring up Lincoln because he obviously went through his fair share of failures politically growing up and then obviously the challenges of, of the Civil War and those talk about crucible moment, but for our country. Oh, that's fantastic. I, I, I think it's a great list and we'll make sure that we get that out to our students in terms of what the podcasts and, and the books. I'm a huge Doris Kearns fan as well. So final thoughts in terms of any, give you the, the last word to our students in this crazy pandemic time, this economic crisis time, talk about crucible moments for the world. Any last advice for them? I think, you know, crucibles are going to find you. Times are going to be tough. You have to be patient. You have to maybe do something that I'm not always particularly good at is don't be too hard on yourself. You are going to make mistakes. Learn if you have to atone or just ask for forgiveness, obviously do that. But we're not, you can't judge yourself by your worst day or your worst moment. The ability to forgive others is obviously crucial in leadership, you know, which doesn't necessarily mean accept poor behavior. It doesn't mean to say there aren't consequences, but certainly forgive yourself you know, you're not your worst, you're not defined by your worst day. And just realize life is typically a long journey. Be patient, keep moving forward, never lose your idealism. Young people are often idealistic. Don't become world weary. That was one of my earnest wishes as, as even as a young kid. Keep your idealism. Leadership is a long journey and, you know, you're not defined by your worst day. Fantastic advice. You dropped a lot of value for our, for our listeners and can't thank you enough work for coming on the podcast. Great to be here, Brian. Thanks a lot. Awesome. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next week. On behalf of everyone at the Bucino Leadership Institute, I'd like to thank all of our podcast listeners, the podcast team, as well as 89.5 WSOU Pirate Radio for allowing us to use their facilities. Follow us online at www.shu.edu backslash leadership and on Twitter at Shu Leadership. At Seton Hall, we make leaders better.